Hello. 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 Is this David? Yes. Oh, Bob. Yeah, Hold Bob. On. Remember him? I remember Bob. Yeah. Hold on. Okay. Let's see. Let's commence to begin, as Casey Stengel used to say. <laughs> this is David Petrusha, author of Too Long Ago, A Childhood Memory, A Vanished World. It's a story about growing up in the Rust Belt in Amsterdam, New York, in the 50s and 60s. And it triggered a lot of memories for me, and hopefully for a lot of other people. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cutmore. We welcome back historian David Petrusha. Petrusha has written many books on American presidents. Perhaps the best known is 1920, The Year of the Six Presidents. Petrusha's newest book, though, is a memoir of his mid-20th century upbringing in our mutual hometown, Amsterdam, New York, in the Mohawk Valley, the former Carpet City. The book is called Too Long Ago, A Childhood Memory, A Vanished World, A Family, A City, A Rust Belt Tale. There's a lot in that title, David. Can you talk more about it? Why did you cram all that stuff in there? <laughs> well, you got to give people a clue as to what it's about. And uh, we sort of wax poetic in the front part of that too long ago, childhood memory, a vanished world, because it is a vanished world. Mm -hmm. it's, it, it just doesn't exist anymore, whether it's in Amsterdam, New York, or, or the rest of the universe. Uh, the world has changed so much, attitudes, styles, behaviors, technologies, and it's it's my memoir, but I, I think I take like third or fourth place in it when I say a family, a city, a Rust Belt tale. So I talk about my family and, you know, because that's that's what shapes you. Uh, the city, the city certainly shaped both of us. And in terms of what happened in the middle of, of our growing up, which was the demise of the carpet industry and the city going from a fairly prosperous place uh, to something which um, slid downward steadily. And, and all of those things go into the book, and, and that's, that's why you've got all those words on the, on the, on the uh, cover. I understand. And uh, you and I do come from the same section of uh, Amsterdam, Reed Hill. Uh, you uh, grew up on Church Street and J Street, and I grew up on Pulaski Street. And when we were young, it was primarily a Polish settlement, but not completely, because my family was there, for example. My father is a native of England. Tell us about how your family ended up settling on Reed Hill, Amsterdam, New York? Well, like an awful lot of the people in Amsterdam, and this, this goes this, this back up to the, the, the immigrant experience, where one person picks up stakes and goes to another part of the country or the world, and then before you know it, his sisters and his brothers and his cousins, whom he numbers by the dozens, as Gilbert and Sullivan used to say, follow him there. And so you get these villages in Europe, which might have been depopulated by um, immigration to some part of, of the New World. And that was the case in Amsterdam. There were a couple of villages from Galicia, 
the southern part of Poland, the Austrian part of Poland, where people pulled up stakes. They were called Lipinki and Krig, and so many people uh, came to Amsterdam from there. And I think that's one of the reasons why the Amsterdam-Polish community was so tight-knit, because so many of the old-timers knew each other from the old country, and so many of, 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 of the folks were, were blood relatives of each other. The same thing held for the Italians, uh, which uh, the people on the south side uh, came from one village in Italy. The people on the west end came from another. Mm -hmm. And I remember talking to Father Chekowitz at St. Stanislaus Church, which was the church in, uh, on Reed Hill, saying that pe the people that immigrated to Amsterdam from Europe, who considered themselves Polish, they, they didn't really come from what we would call Poland because there really wasn't a Poland. But he said Poland was in their hearts. Oh, certainly. I mean, uh, there, there's uh, a, it's, uh, it's almost like a, a secular hymn, and it ends with the words, Poland has not perished, not while we yet live. And that referred to the fact that it was partitioned in the late uh, 18th century and remained partitioned until 1918. There was no Poland on the map of Europe, but certainly the Polish people held fast, fate, uh, fast to their, their heritage, their language, and, and certainly to their religion. The book cover shows a little boy and a grown man in front of a Coca-Cola uh, machine of of its day. Uh, I presume you're the little boy. Uh, can you explain that picture? That's that's me, and and that speaks to uh, a large part of the setting of the book as it relates to me, which is um, behind the bar. <laughs> if you to the uh, if you concentrate not on the Coca Cola machine, you'll see that the gentleman uh, holding my hand is uh, it was my uncle Tony. My mm -hmm. mother's Uncle Tony, and he's leaning on the bar. This is in back of the bar, A. Lancheski's Bar and Grill at 161 Church Street. And this is, this is where I grew up. And I spent the first, oh, roughly the first 10 years of, of my life and, and met some very uh, interesting characters uh, on the other side of that bar. And, mm. and that, that speaks to, you know, sort of the working class existence of, 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 of my origins, of many of the people in Amsterdam, and uh, also uh, to the avocations of many of the people of a preceding generation or two. Uh, when they were not gambling, they were uh, often imbibing. Yes. Well, drinking and gambling were, were quite the, the activities in our hometown. It was. It was. Yeah. There, were, there, now, were, there were a lot of other options, actually. Actually, one of the, one of the points is that people had so much more to do. Uh, mm. in, a, in a smaller town. The social life was far more social. Um, uh, Amsterdam now, I think Montgomery County as a whole, the county that Amsterdam is in, um, has no movie theaters at all. Amsterdam had several. Uh, in the early 50s, it had its own little symphony orchestra. Amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. and, and certainly so many clubs and social organizations either on Reed Hill or all over the city, of any ethnic group or religion. There's so many wonderful little points in, in your book. Um, in the cover photo, your Uncle Tony 
Lensinski, I hope that's how I say it, is wearing a, like a coat, nice looking sort of light colored coat. And you said that was how he dressed. And I noticed he's got a tie on. He yeah. dressed that way as the bartender. Yes. I mean, he was old school. He was from uh, he was from the Russian part of Poland, which which most of the rest of us looked looked askance at. Uh, you know, as again, uh, the the divisions which which uh, accrued to the immigrant experience. Uh, you know, we sort of lump today all Hispanics together, whether they're from Venezuela or Puerto Rico or Mexico. And mm-hmm. but but when you're part of that group, you you see the differences uh, among them. But yes, he was he was very formal, always dressed that way, and so did you know so did most people. Maybe not when they were working in the mills, but when they went to church, when they visited relatives, it, it was a, a much more formal in a way, e- e- egalitarian in an upward way than the way people dress today, which is egalitarian in a, in a downward way. Right. Your uh, publicity blurb and in and, and your book, it points out that you were sickly as a child, bookwormish also. But let me focus on the sickly. That's too bad. Well, yeah. I mean, as, as I say, if, if there was a germ, I, I caught it. And, and I was, I was uh, out, uh, out on my back for uh, good portions of, of the time, not, not with anything too serious, but a couple of uh, occasions nearly got me. The first was when they invented this wonderful new thing called penicillin, and they—I guess they were giving it out left and right at first. And before I knew it, uh, I turned uh, an interesting shade of blue, and that was that was it for for uh, my ever taking a shot of penicillin again. And then um, in oh seventh or eighth grade. Um, a, a very odd incident happened to me, and it, it manifested itself one Thursday morning. I remember it being a Thursday because that is the day people at uh, St. St- kids at St. Stanislaus School would get packed off to go to confession at St. Stanislaus. And two things were happening to me. One were some strange pains in my chest, and another is that I was hearing voices. Not heavenly voices, but I was hearing voices distorted, uh, normal voices, but sounding like people were talking like uh, after inhaling helium, very high-pitched and weird. Mm-hmm. And that night I went home and said to my mother, uh, yeah, I'm, I, I'm, are you hearing these things? She says, no. And then I mentioned, uh, I don't think I would have mentioned it otherwise, uh, these chest pains. And I was then hustled off to a doctor. You could get to a doctor very quickly, I guess, then, Dr. Weil, who, despite the fact that it was not a common disease, but it was childhood uh, or a a pericarditis, an inflammation of the sac around the heart. And I was (laughs) that night at St. Mary's Hospital and was really homebound for quite a while after that recovering because if you didn't take care of it, uh, and if it uh, spread out and became more uh, serious, it could kill you. So, um, and you know, and people, the the prevalence of injuries to people. Uh, mm-hmm. I, a lot of kids seem to just fall and injure themselves, and either become sort of addled after that, or die, or become blind. So mothers would be very protective of. 
of their children, and they would be very protective. Another reason is polio. Mm-hmm. Right after penicillin mm-hmm. comes in, comes the Salk vaccine. But before that, um, you know, it, every mother's nightmare that their kid might turn turn into someone on, on crutches for the rest of their life. The, the mm-hmm. specter of an iron lung was a frightening thing. Yeah. Now, family secrets. Before your mother married your father, who was Danny Petruja, I believe, your mother also married had married a man named Alfred Sikalski, who died, if I understand this correctly, in a non-combat truck accident in England after the end of World War II. Uh, first fact, check me on that. And that was kept secret from you. Why, why was that? Yeah. Um, people could be very circumspect about things back then. Now, um, everyone sort of wears their... Um, their secrets on their arm, it seems. Uh, they're more than willing um, to talk about very bad things that have happened to them, etc., etc. But for some reason, my mother did not inform me of her first marriage, and there was nothing to be ashamed about, although it was very, very brief, until I was in my 30s when she sat me down at the kitchen table one one day and, and laid it out. I, there were a few clues beforehand people that she would meet on the street and would be very vague about who who they were or a check from the government, a widow's pension check from Washington. But, you know, we were getting, you know, we were getting unemployment checks back then. So government checks were not the rarest (laughs) thing in the world. And when you're a kid, you don't ask questions as much about some things. And you just sort of assume that this is this is the normal order of things. But another Mm -hmm. clue was my mother's wedding dress, a color, uh, there was a cover photograph of it. We had framed around the house, and the color was not white. It was a very, very, very light baby blue. Your your mother's name was uh, Loretta? Loretta Marek, yes. Too long ago, it's it's been described in some of the reviews as alternately sharp-edged and warm-hearted. Can you give us a little bit, and you've talked about this some, about the sharp-edged part, the thing that I uh, focus on uh, reading in the book. You really come down hard on the tearing down of Amsterdam's downtown. Yes, absolutely. And it's it's fascinating that on the city's website, you know, I quote it, and to, and to how, uh, shall we say, negative it is. And, and, you know, most cities and chambers of commerce and, and local boosters will just say everything is wonderful. And everything has not been wonderful in Amsterdam since the Bigelow Sanford carpet mills moved out, followed by Mohasco. And one of the great things that Amsterdam's love, Amsterdamians love to complain about, rightfully, is how urban renewal in the 1960s uh, only temporarily renewed and and carved the city up. The city is, was carved up enough either by ethnic neighborhoods or by creeks and hills, but one of the places which you could get to easily was downtown. Mm-hmm. And between mm-hmm. the arterial system and a mall stuck in, in what had been the middle of Main Street and, and messed up traffic patterns, um, it, it created... It was it was one of the the many failures of of the nineteen sixties uh, uh, type of planning. I believe uh, Alex Torres dubbed it the Berlin Mall. <laughs> That's a good one. 
Yeah. Um, another small point that you're critical of, I hope I read this correctly. I mean, people from Amsterdam love their pizza and all kinds. I bet even, I don't know if Lenzenski's made pizza, but they right did. next door, Baldi's did. And very did. early on, which, uh, which yeah. just absolutely floored me that you, you know, you even even ethnic groups stereotype themselves and you say, well, we were only making pierogi and gawumpki and whatever. And they were making pizza right after World War II. And I found a newspaper ad in 1940 where they were making chop suey. Uh, so, you know, uh, Reed Hill uh, fusion cuisine, uh, very, you know, decades and decades ago before you would ever suspect it. But the pizza was, was really great in Amsterdam. But the thing was, and I found this was interesting. I was doing an interview with a fellow from Kingston, and he brought this up. And and what I talk about is how absolutely non-fast food pizza was back then. Right. It, it took was, forever to get a pizza. You couldn't get one in less than a half hour. That would be a miracle. And it would be 45 minutes at least at Batisti's on Park Hill and maybe longer. And I said, you know... You know, while you were sitting there in that booth watching your life go by, you were wondering if, if you know, beyond that wooden swinging door, your pizza was being prepared <laughs> on a 100-watt easy-bake oven. <laughs> and the fellow from Kingston said, yes, that's yeah. exactly how it was here. So I don't know how they improved the technology, but they have. I remember because we were scafidis devotees. Ah, we lived, very good. Had a distinct after, taste after on we the left bottom. Pulaski Street. Good. We lived. We lived near them, but any, uh, up on Peter Lane. But then I, I remember you'd sit there and wait and wait and wait. But of course, if you were a certain age, maybe part of it was then you'd drink more. The, <laughs> well, certainly in the bars. Certainly in yeah. the bars. Yeah. Now, let me rather, I love the, the couple, you come up with a couple of questions. When, back in the old days, Amsterdam, New York, 1950s, uh, somebody says to you, where is it? What are they asking? Where, where is it means where, where is the wake? Because going to wakes <laughs> was, a, was a big deal, particularly when so many people were related to each other <clears throat> or knew each other in the mills. You know, it wasn't like you went off to far off Albany and walk and worked with people who, you know, were living in Green County or Wilton, Saratoga County or somewhere. You know, it was it was tight knit and close and you paid your respects. And then another question was, what was it? What was it means? What was the number, i.e. the policy slips, the numbers, part of the, the big gambling culture of of Amsterdam, which was very, very hard to figure out and was meant to be hard so it couldn't be fixed and right, and, right. and related to the the payoffs in various races at at, a, at at various horse tracks and and the and that would depend on which track they were following at that time of year etc cetera, etc cetera. my father would listen to WSNY from Schenectady which had an incredibly faint signal in Amsterdam trying to write down all those numbers and then do the calculations. He wasn't particularly good at math. My mother was, but he would, he would, he would do those calculations like he was Albert Einstein. I remember that question as what came out. 
Ah, what came out? Okay, same but, same principle, same principle. <laughs> and I also remember that my, my dad and my mother were both originally from what we call in Amsterdam the East End. My father from Eagle Street, my mother from Forbes Street, and my father always got his hair cut at Nikki the Barber on East Main. And you go into Nikki's place and other places back in the day, they would write that that number on the date. And so if you were coming in for your haircut you'd find out what was it. <laughs> well, I mean, it was everywhere. You'd, you'd go in, there would be on, on James Street, not far from where I lived, there were two bookie joints right uh, opposite each other, you know, on other sides of the street. One was a grocery store. One was a confectionery. Whenever you heard the word confectionery, <laughs> <laughs> you were, or, and, and shoemakers. Shoemakers might take yep. wherever people were were coming in. I think not so much in bars because you could lose your liquor license. You mm-hmm. know, you couldn't lose your confectionery license. Uh, right. But in the mills, in the mills, later on, I worked at one place when I was in college, and there was a big Lithuanian guy who would come around and and take the numbers from all the all the women on the on the sewing machines. One of the reasons I think this book will be read so avidly by Amsterdam residents and what I call Amsterdam expats that are all over the world, really, is because you're so specific. You you note that Brownies hot dogs, and probably every uh, industrial city had a its favorite hot dog palace. And in the 1950s, the price was so stable that they had it kind of permanently engraved or something like that in, well, yeah, uh, on they, the wall? Yeah, they had uh, behind the uh, counter, I almost said bar, behind the counter, it wasn't a bar, uh, they they had their menu painted on, on white glass in red letters. And it was, it was painted there, and it stayed those prices forever, which is, you know, I... I, and I cite all the all the prices half out of nostalgia, which which people uh, love, but also to make the point of how stable prices were back then. And and now we now we're changing prices uh, constantly, but back then they they stayed the same for a while. Gas nineteen nine a gallon. Another one of your stories that I got a kick out of. There was this paper company, Smealy and Voorhees, where they like recycled old newspapers and what the what they happened there was people would put money in old newspapers in addition to let's say putting it in your mattress and uh, sometimes the workers there would find that money yeah i did not know that story until i started to do this book when i was i was talking to one of my contemporaries who still lives on on reed street and and he told me that I, I associated Smealy and, and Voorhees with one, it stunk to high heaven. <laughs> and no. and two, uh the big bales of, of of whatever they couldn't make new paper out of, they would just dump out by the, the creek and the dam near my house and which attracted a lot of rats. Uh <laughs> charming, wasn't it? Um yes. was was that was that sometimes people would have the habit of, of hiding their their savings uh, in in old newspapers, and then they would forget about it, and the workers at Smealy and Voorhees would find money in in the newspapers, and that one day, some guy must have found 
the 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 mother load of of cash and and he just left the one day and was never and never worked another day in his life now i think you've really upped the ante on uh, on books about the amsterdam area and there are a lot of them i mean there's a bunch of us who've written about local history i have a few names jerry snyder rob von hosselin dan weaver the late bob going i believe a good friend of yours yes. peter Peter Betts, Scott Hefner, me, of course, and Jim Lavat, who writes fiction about Amsterdam, and Mike Sinquanti, who's oh, yeah. now the mayor of Amsterdam. Do you know any other city that has a, a mayor who's so. also an historian? Well, I, and I don't think you have such a per capita amount of, of historians. And I, I, I believe that speaks to um, this strange sort of, of love-hate relationship with the city, you know? It's like, gee, things didn't turn out quite the way we, we wanted it to. But, you know, this is our home. This is our home, our native land. And and we, we hold it no matter how far away we live uh, and, and how long ago we departed. We hold it we hold it still very close to our heart. Now, before you went off to write books and become quite famous, really, with your, your history books, uh, you were elected alderman in Amsterdam, but you come from... Well, the area, it was the fourth ward, and I came from the fourth ward, and we were, and I still am, a loyal Democrat, but you became a Republican. When I was elected in 1985, the last previous uh, Republican alderman was elected in 1920 as part of the was... Warren Harding landslide. Um, but, you know, there would, there would occasionally be... Republicans in the area, and they would put up a good fight, but they would go down to horrendous defeat every uh, every two years whenever they were running for supervisor or just about anything else. One story from your your high school days that I thought was unusual. It says it said you used to tease John Duchesne Jr., who's still alive. I mean, he's still working. Uh, he was fire chief and mayor, and went on quite a career in Amsterdam. You, why would you tease, you know, but he's also kind of a powerful figure and you're sort of a sickly child. Team. What were he you doing? He was on the football team and shall we say I was not, okay? Right. And um, so uh, we, we'd, for some reason we had it in, in uh, because, you know, kids, uh, kids just come out with stuff. Teenagers <laughs> just come out with stuff. So we determined and we were fascinated by certain actors and such. And one of them was Anthony Quinn who was still quite popular then. He was probably at his peak of, 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 of box office uh, boffo this, okay? And so we determined that, that uh, Duke Duchesne, the mayor, Anthony Duchesne, uh, John Duchesne, rather, was, uh, was you know, yeah, sort of an ethnic-looking guy. And Anthony Quinn always played, uh, you know, ethnics of some sort or another, that he looked like Anthony Quinn. So we would, we would just go after him on this over and over again. And we even, we even enticed someone who uh, did not know him at all to go up to him one day and ask, uh, uh, could I have your autograph, Mr. Quinn? <laughs> and, and why he did not beat uh, any of us to a pulp, I, I have uh, no idea, but I'm quite well, grateful for that. <laughs> yes, well, I, I think we all should be. Well, this has been a, a, a great joy to speak with you, David Petrusha. I'm trying to say it correctly. I know your mother made a big deal about how you pronounce that name. Well, I, it's, it, it's it, the standard definition. Uh, 
pronunciation in this country is Petrusha. She would say Petruza, which was sort of odd because her family was – her father was actually from Poland. But she was given a sort of hard Z, and then periodically we'd be mistaken for Italians. <laughs> well, anyway, we are just out of time. David Petrusha is author of – here's the title, Too Long Ago, A Childhood Memory, A Vanished World, A Family, A City, A Rust Belt Tale – uh, and I'm glad I, I can't say uh, where is it, you know, because I haven't passed away yet. But someday, right. when they ask, I hope you come to my wake. <laughs> well, COVID permitting, we'll do it. <laughs>